This episode of Earl Grey is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Hi, this is Elizabeth Dennehy. I played Lieutenant Commander Shelby on Star Trek Next Generation, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome to another cup of Earl Grey, Trek FM's dedicated podcast to the next generation. I'm your host, Justin Ozer. Richard is away this week, but joined with me today is the amazing Amy Nelson. Amy, how are you doing today? Well, hello and welcome back. We missed you last week. I know the first time since I've been with Earl Grey, what, summer of 2017 that I've even missed an episode. I know. I was flying solo, but thankfully had Zach from Standard Orbit. So I'm glad to at least get one of my co-hosts back with me. So good job. Oh, <laughs> excellent. Yeah. And I had a chance to listen to the episode and really enjoyed it. So you guys did great. Oh, well, thank you. Okay, so before we get into the episode and introduce a special guest, there are a couple of pieces of listener feedback. Uh, So first, uh, I wanted to read an iTunes review that we got. That is great, listeners. We love getting iTunes review, and it really does help others to find our show. So we would just love if you haven't left a review already, please do so. We'd love to hear your thoughts on how we're doing. Absolutely. Okay, so the review we got is a five-star review on iTunes with the subject of definitely a must-listen from someone named Chris at TrekFanLV. I think we may know that person, Amy. Well, I think we do. That would be Chris Trebuzio. That's right. So, hi, Chris. I know you're listening. But thanks for the review. And in his review, he says, I've been listening to TrekFM for some time, and each show does not disappoint each and every time. Specifically for the team on Earl Grey, they continuously put out the best subjects, great guest interviews, and who doesn't love the casts of which I call Storytime with Justin, in which his top-notch research ability finds us listening to never-before-heard story plots, which never made it to the series. Well, I just want to say thank you for that. Glad you're enjoying our Lost Episode series. Chris also says, Amy Nelson gives that breath of fresh air every time, and Richard Marquez is that hard-hitting, pull-no-punches, rip-the-band-aid-off, why Wesley, Klingon, that like Worf you enjoy. <laughs> Kudos to Trek FM and specifically Earl Grey. May you continue success for years to come. Well, thank you so much, Chris. We really appreciate that that review. It warmed our heart and made us feel good. (laughs) Yes, thank you so much. Very nice. So we also have Babel Conference feedback from Earl Grey 262, which was our best and worst Riker moments where we had guest Wes Huntington. So Amy, do you want to read the first piece of feedback on that? 
Yes, Kimberly Lawler says, I was surprised you went back to some very early episodes as season one Riker is not the version of him I like the best by any means. You did find some gems in A Matter of Honor and The Dauphin in season two, though both great Riker moments and I laughed out loud at the Riker-Guinan conversation. Oh, that was good. <laughs> That was our honorable mention. So she continues and says, some of my favorite Riker moments include, number one, how Riker takes command in Best of Both Worlds. He didn't want to become captain the way he did, but when he had, he showed great, confident leadership in choosing his command team, executing the divisionary attack on the Borg, and rescuing Picard and be willing to sacrifice the ship in the end. Number two, how he treats Deanna in The Loss. He is very understanding and comforting, even when she tries to push him away. But he also challenges her a bit to rethink her decision to resign. It is a great display of their friendship. And I agree. Good job, Kimberly. And her number three, how he dresses down Marek in Attached while he is trying to negotiate Picard and Crusher's rescue. I love the way he says, take all this junk with you about his crazy security setup in the guest quarters, and then explains in gleeful detail how not helping the Federation is going to backfire on the Kess and the Prit. Prit, yes. There are a lot to choose from, but these are some of my favorites. I do also like how he is in Rascals, tricking the Ferengi while working with Picard. Well, Kimberly, thank you. Those are great. Your three picks are just wonderful. Absolutely. Love every one of them. (laughs) So thank you for that. Greg Malumbi says, nice discussion. You covered my least favorite Riker moments, except I think second chances. But I was hoping in terms of best, his relationship with Minuet would have gotten a mention. There was something casual yet classical about those scenes on the holodeck. It was my favorite parts of the episode and the the whole episode was great. Yeah, thank you, Greg. I hadn't thought about that one. That's from one one zero zero one zero zero one, I think, where we see Minuet. Yeah. And um, yeah, there there is something that that's pretty great about those those scenes. So I like the choice. Yeah. Well, Tim Robertson says I am shocked. Tim, you're <laughs> always shocked. I know. I fully expected Amy Nelson's worst Riker moment would be when he hooked up with Roe. Tim, yes, that is my worst favorite. How did I miss it? It's thankful for listeners like you that know me so well and can fill in the blanks when I absentmindedly forget the worst moment of writing. Well, you know, I think we first talked about that moment on one of my first guest appearances on Earl Grey like a year and a half ago. So I try not to bring it up too often, but Tim had to. And uh, okay, it's not a good moment, (laughs) but they lost their memories. I know I keep saying that. And uh, Christian Alonso says, I'm so glad the game was mentioned. On my listen driving to work the other day, I couldn't think of any other worst Riker moments except that one. Fun episode. Yeah, the game. That was pretty bad. Here's this strange device. Sure, I'll give it a try. Bad choice. Let's bring it on board. Infect everyone. (laughs) That would be great. So, yeah. So thanks, everyone, for all of your feedback on that episode. Glad you enjoyed it. So also joined with us today is a special guest, Christopher D. Littlefield. And this is only his second podcast, so we're happy he's gracing Earl Grey with one of his first podcasting experiences. His first was with Amy on Postcards. Anyway, Chris, how are you doing today? I'm doing so great. Thank you so much for having me. It's awesome to be on Earl Grey for the first time. Excellent. Yeah, welcome to Earl Grey. Thank you. So because this is your first time guesting here, tell us about your history with Star Trek. 
Yeah, so I watched, I remember watching a lot of the films in the theater with my dad, Search for Spock, uh, Wrath of Khan, Voyage Home, all of those. And then we used to watch TNG together, and I just kind of ran with it. And I there's really not a time when I don't remember loving Star Trek and being into every series and every film. I've been to a lot of conventions. And in 2012, I went to Orlando Comic-Con and I saw the for the 25th anniversary of Encounter at Farpoint and I got to see the entire crew together. It was really, really cool. Yeah. So question Mm -hmm. for you. And there's a lot of people that are started with Star Trek with their family. So I want to know, are you more of a fan than your father or about equal or is he still the larger I am definitely much more of a big fan than my dad is without getting too personal he I was raised in a very conservative family and as you know everybody knows Star Trek has always kind of been more humanistic and the religion thing is a little bit you know I mean of course on Discovery we're getting closer to that now but my dad's still very conservative and I think that the older he got And the more Star Trek kind of started exploring more secular humanistic things, he just kind of, he just kind of let it go. And I think it just got, it just got, there was too much of it for him. Once DS9, in the middle of DS9 and then Voyager, I think he was just like, "Ah, I'm kind of done. But we still go to the movies together and he loves, he loves to watch episodes with me whenever, whenever we're around. And so he still loves it, but I'm definitely the, the big trekker in the family. Nice. Yep. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> oh, excellent. <laughs> so you wanted to talk about the episode Masks today. And before I ask you about that, I just want to say, listeners, I know some people love it. Some people hate it. I hope that however you feel about the episode, that you'll continue listening because I think we're going to have a really great discussion about the episode. But having said that, tell us why you wanted to talk about Masks today. Yeah, so I definitely wanted to pick an episode that was in the sixth or seventh season, because to me, that is those are the two seasons in which Next Gen really perfected their aesthetic, and it just looked beautiful, everything looked perfect, and the writing got really, really good, and the character development was awesome. So a lot of episodes in those two seasons stood out to me, but Masks always kind of was this was this special episode that I didn't quite really fully understand when it aired. I was 17 when it came out at the time. I think it was 1994. Actually, this month, February 21st, 1994. So this month will be the 25th uh, anniversary of Masks. These coincidences are so interesting because this one will drop two days before that, and we totally did not plan it that way. (laughs) That is so cool. No, listeners, we totally planned it. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, I looked it up and I thought, oh, wow, that's really cool. And I remember I'm a theater kid. I was a theater kid. And this is what I do now. I'm a musician in musical theater and Broadway off Broadway. And this episode always felt very theatrical to me. There are a lot of scenes that almost feel like it's in a black box theater. And that's what really that's what I really remember is the aesthetic and the look and the lighting. And I think because I was 17 when it aired, I thought maybe I I remember, of course, being very confused by the episode. And I thought maybe I missed maybe I missed something. Maybe this episode went over my head. And so I I figured let's rewatch it. Let me rewatch it a few times and and delve a little bit deeper into it. Okay. Yeah, I mean it's kinda of, we'll we'll get into this a little bit more, yeah. but I, I've liked the episode for a long time. 
But rewatching it for this, this is the first time I feel like I truly completely understand everything that's going on because I was trying to focus on each little bit of it. So yeah, I agree. Yeah, it, I don't think it's the kind of thing you can really completely get the first time <laughs> that right. you see it. All right, so I think we've talked a little bit about your initial thoughts. Um, Amy, I just want to get uh, initial thoughts from you on masks. Yeah, one thing that I love, and we talked about this when we uh, covered our Joe Minoski episodes. And Earl Grey 189. Was, was a, <laughs> there you go. And what I love about masks is that you can say that title and everyone knows exactly what you're talking mm-hmm. about. Like this episode is not to be confused with no. anything else <laughs> and no one's going to say, now what's that episode about? No, everyone knows. And I love that. And whether, again, like you said at the beginning, whether you like it or you don't, you know what this is about. And I am just so glad, Chris, that you wanted to talk about it because you're right. It is so theatrical. And as I was watching it again, I was just like, oh my gosh, this is literally, I could be in a theater watching this and just the nuances that they, you know, make with the choice of the camera angles and the sets and, you know, the, how Brent Spiner is changing characters with the slightest like the breastplate, you know, and so it's almost like a one-man show when he's doing it like, okay, so now he's this person and his breastplate changes. And it just seems so theatrical that I really loved it. And I think you're right. Like you can watch it over and over again. And do you get it? Do you really get it? And I think like you, Justin, I got it this time and I, you know, wrote down quite a bit of notes and so I'm sure we'll get to it, but it's, it's really great. I'm surprised at really how much I enjoyed it this time. I watched it three times in preparation for this podcast and I remember the first time I watched it, I texted you and I was like, wow, why did I pick this episode? This is terrible. (laughs) This is awful. Why did I pick this one? And then I watched it two more times and I found myself I, I kept having more questions each time I watched it. And by the third time, I was like, okay, I'm actually really into this. Nice. What about you, Justin? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I've seen it now, I guess probably at least six or seven times. And I think that I was really interested in it the first time that I saw it, which because I'm a newer Star Trek fan was only like nine years ago. But then I on different rewatches, there were some times where I like it, sometimes where I was annoyed by it. But most of the time, I think I've, I've liked it and found it to be really interesting that it's saying something important, that there's an interesting message to it. So I think there is a lot to get into. And I mean, I think one of the things that fascinates me about it as well, as you mentioned, Amy, is that it's written by Joe Minoski, who's somebody who he wrote episodes for TNG as well as DS9, Voyager, and even a Discovery episode. Uh, he's probably most famous for writing Darmok and for the proliferation of the number 47 in Star Trek. But right. I, I've, I've been interested also because he tends to have these really out-of-the-box things like Darmok is a really out-of-the-box episode. And I could probably list off 10 other Minoski episodes across those different series that are just so different from anything else. And I think this one stands out as well. So I, I just wondered, you know, first what you thought that Minoski brings to this episode or how this is like a Minoski kind of type episode. Well, I wanted to watch, after I did some research on Minoski, and I told Justin earlier, I'm just getting into learning more about all of the writers of the different episodes. Amy, you told me, oh, that's the Minoski episode. And so I looked it up. And of course, Darmok is the one that we all remember the most. And Justin's wearing that lovely Darmok t-shirt today. (laughs) 
And I think like Darmok, Masks is also very theatrical. And I want, I, I don't have a lot, uh, much else to add to that because I can't, I, I need to rewatch all of his episodes and, and, and kind of compare them. Okay. Uh, your thoughts, Amy? Yeah, or go back and listen to Earl Grey one eighty nine, where we talked about our yeah, that's where we talked about our top three Minoski episodes. But I think we probably talked about like twelve of them. <laughs> yeah, we covered so many. But again, what do I think Minoski brings to this? Like that intellectual higher plane. It's not what the words are saying. You've got to think higher. You know, and figure out what, who is Masaka? What is the symbolism? What is, you know, this ritual that they're trying to describe? And how does that relate to us? And like, I just, I think that it's so great. They always talking about Masaka. And then who is she? What does she represent? And, and so taking it to the next level, like you cannot watch this on face value. <laughs> like you have to go deeper totally. with it. You have to try and get it. Otherwise, it's just, I would think, a very stupid episode. But if you, you know, analyze it, and I think that's what Minoski brings to this episode, because when you analyze his episodes, they are very deep and at the same time up above. Like you have to go to the higher existence, a different plane to understand. Yeah, him. Ron Moore commented, uh, the uh, when he got the script he was like jesus what is this wonder he and he wondered what he he had been smoking out there right. in the alps <laughs> yeah and then but the, but then he also said it's fascinating and it's full of wild concepts and uh sometimes you have to take those risks risks and go somewhere bizarre so i guess that's what i would say you know minoski bright and and actually i wanted to bring in something since we're talking about minoski and what people thought about it and what his ideas were something from the next generation companion by larry nemechek so it's all right. I'd like to bring that in for a couple of minutes because I think it's really interesting to get that background. So in the in the companion, it says uh, former staff writer Joe Minoski's second offbeat and long distance script of the year. I think you're referencing that a little bit, Chris. He was actually working from Europe on this script <laughs> mm-hmm. at this time. It's from an old premise of Michael Pillars, suggest to take on the lost library at Alexandria. And it featured a large amount of well done opticals, but proved confusing to many, including several who worked on it. Quote, I think a lot of people have been utterly mystified by it, admitted Jerry Taylor. I love the mythic aspect, how important that has been to so many cultures, and how we in contemporary days have strayed away from that. Joe has a magnificent imagination. He thinks in a deep way, agreed Naren Shankar, charged with clarifying some of the vagaries in his uncredited polish. But in this case, it was too much. We had to make it more understandable, make the clues clearer, and the end result is, it's still kind of confusing. <laughs> Director Bob Weimer, heading up his eighth TNG effort, was more to the point. I didn't get it, he said, noting the extensive rewrite. I always look and find a meaningful subtext of some kind in most every show I've done. More often than not, they're little morality plays, and I was unable to find that in Masks. It ended up kind of an exotic adventure story, but it didn't have any heart. Recalling a core element of the second Star Trek movie, science advisor Andre Bormanis said the script's original explanation of the archive was an advanced Genesis device. That was to scout out a planet to recreate members of an old society kept on file and mistook the Enterprise for such a world by triggering a malfunction. Minoski's original use of purely archetypal forms were hard to conceptualize, Shankar recalled, and so they were changed to actual characters suggested by the archive's image files. That didn't help actor Brent Spiner, who made no bones about his concern in bringing off the various character extremes. Quote, 
Dustin Hoffman took a year to figure out how to play a woman in Tootsie. How am I supposed to do it in two days? <laughs> Recalled Taylor. But I thought he did an extraordinary job. He's a fine actor and he needn't be so worried. So I think it's interesting to get some of that background, like even the people working on it or directing it or writing it were like, I don't quite know what was going on <laughs> right. with this thing. And they had to actually simplify his concept. I think it, it's interesting that Minoski originally thought it would be like some advanced Genesis type device that's looking to colonize a new planet with these people or something. <laughs> yeah, I really loved the Andre Bormanis, the explanation that it was a that it was an advanced Genesis device. Mm-hmm. I, I I learned that he said that before I watched it the last time, and that really helped put a lot of it more into context and make things a lot more believable for me. Yeah, because I think you don't necessarily really get the explanation of like why this archive is trying to do this thing. <laughs> it's kind of weird. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I, I think it's interesting to to get that background and see where where they were going. So talking about the the archive, you know, one of the things that we're told is that this archive has i guess been in this comet for 87 million years now i think there's a lot of kind of old objects in star trek there's the bajoran orbs the probe from the inner light the stone of gold from the gambit two part of the preserver obelisk the iconian gateways but i think probably only the guardian of forever which is like billions of years old is an older thing that they they actually find than this 87 million year old archive do you think it adds to the story to know that it's that ancient or does it does it matter? I think it's cool. It makes me think of a lot of ancient religion and the the like maybe some type of Aztec symbolism or something and I I like that it's so old but yet they they have they possessed all of this technology somehow. Mhm. The super advanced old society, yeah. Mhm. Well, and it's so cool that you bring up those, you know, other ancient archives that we see, like, you know, the probe from Inner Light and Guardian of Forever and the Iconian Gateways, like, you know, because we've seen them. And I think that it definitely adds that they say 87 million years old, number one, because they have the technology on board to determine the age of something. So it shows how advanced that the starship and that the crew is at determining the age. So I do like that. But I think it's so cool that it's like, well, why is it in this comet? Well, because it's been gathering dust and stuff, you know? And so it really like sets a picture in your mind. Like this is something you would see on the theater. And how are we going to show something as old? Because it's gathering dust for 87 million years old. And the the special effects when they do the laser and it just deteriorates and just it's melts so cool. it was so gorgeous. You know, it was only supposed to be like six, second lo- six seconds long or something, and they liked it so much that they extended it by like three more seconds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, awesome. You know, but it's giving this visual picture instead of just telling us. And I think that that's the importance of that whole, you know, that it's so ancient. I kind of wish that they would have said that it was 47 million years old, though. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh. <laughs> well, Minoski wasn't able to insert it into the script, I guess. Right. Uh, but, but like, I think it also serves a, narr- a certain narrative purpose, too, because you have to keep the mystery of what it is. And if it hadn't gathered all this stuff over millions of years and looked like a comet, it would be like, oh, look, an information archive is flying by, <laughs> you know? Right. So yeah. because it's in this comet and they're like, oh, there's this comet, but it's weird and let's see what's what's in it. Actually, I think that makes 
that aspect of it is is really intriguing that they're they're doing that and trying to find that out. And it kind of sets Picard up too with his archaeological yeah stuff going on. You know, it kind of gives him an in, and then he's the un- he's the one that ends up kind of figuring out how to decode everything. That's true. Well, and like everyone's getting a part in this mystery because, you know, Worf has to set the phasers to the right amount of time and work with Geordi, you know. And so all through the episode, I was noticing everyone had their own little part to play. Yeah, in- including Worf's previously unknown talent at decoding symbols. <laughs> right. The <laughs> antlers. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes I find that a little funny because Worf's explaining this stuff and it's like, okay, he's, he's been brushing up on that, I guess. And I think Michael Michael Dorn is on the record for saying this is his least favorite episode. He as well. is, yeah. <laughs> he, he really he oh. really didn't like it. I don't know. Maybe it's we'll have to talk <laughs> right. to him about that. I'll text him. <laughs> so you know, another thing that I think is really interesting is how the ship gets transformed. I think it's really kind of striking visually that there's this physical transformation that they're adding. You know these these plant elements and these stone sculptures and all of this stuff. And we hear there's an aqueduct in a swamp somewhere, but they couldn't show that. But like, I think the physical transformation is interesting and kind of heightens the tension, like the ship's being taken over, we need to do something about this. But I also felt like it was kind of unusual because it's almost like a holodeck being transformed, but the ship itself is being transformed. So it it kind of inverts what you might see in a holodeck episode where you create something out of you know, whatever the light that's there, but the ship itself, the matter is being transformed. So I thought that that made it like pretty interesting. But what do you think about that concept that the ship is just kind of physically transforming like this? I think it's interesting, but I had some issues with it Mm. because like the DNA transformation, what, where's the DNA coming from that's being transformed? You know, it's like a replicator. Yeah, and I think that again, <laughs> no? the, the the yeah, but I mean, again, the explanation that it's an advanced Genesis device kind of makes me buy mm, it more. Okay, yeah, but it, it just felt a little weird. The DNA thing—it just look—it looks like some. Hey, we need. Can somebody just throw some leaves on the bridge? You know, but you know, I think it's a really cool concept. The the snakes in the <laughs> in the uh, torpedo. Was it the torpedo. I I. For some, at that moment, I thought this is the Halloween three of Star Trek: The Next Generation. <laughs> have you seen Halloween three? I have not. It's it's so bizarre, and it and it has to do with uh, a guy that makes a bunch of masks, also. Oh, okay. Which is really interesting. And then there's this scene where there's like a bunch of snakes and stuff, and you know, it's it's cool. What do you think, Amy? So this is probably my least favorite part or aspect of the episode is this you're you're right they're just throwing leaves you know you've got these palm leaves it's like okay go out oh the leaves were trimmed let's use it on you know and I get why they're doing it so it doesn't bug me that much but yeah and when it's not a holodeck because they're very specific to say well it's not our ship transforming things it's stuff being beamed over no they're no 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 i think they're actually it, the probe is transforming the matter on the ship i think that's that's what they, uh, they say sure yeah. because they were saying that it's that it's not our ship stuff it's like being transported I think the over. information was being transported was being passed through the beam and then it was reorganizing the, the matter and the dna of the ship yeah and then okay. taping a picture right. of the sun up in engineering <laughs> 
Man, you guys are really ragging on this. I actually, I actually just this one yeah, aspect. I'm with of you. It. I'm with you on that. I mean, okay. Well, we'll just strongly disagree because it's one of my favorite things. I just love seeing the transformation. Plus, the temple at the end is amazing. The little set that they, that I they love that built. Yeah, it that's is. That's gorgeous. Yeah. Well, and another thing, it's like. Okay, when you when Crusher and Troy go into Troy's quarter and it's like, oh, what's this? Well, what? Someone's coming into right. your quarters and there's no record or maybe anything. Maybe it's a gift from and, Will. Oh, well, maybe yeah. a secret admirer, you know? Yeah, every, every once in a while, Riker just adds something in her quarters. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's not his right. style. Wouldn't you freak so. out, though? Oh, my. That's what more is this? Tom Riker's style, isn't it? <laughs> That's true. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Okay. So anyways, it's I understand why they're doing it. And you're right. The temple definitely when they and that is, again, another really cool special effects when they're standing in the corridor and then it transforms into the temple. Like, that's really cool. And seeing the symbols everywhere. I really do like the symbols and we'll probably get to it later. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. I wish that they would have shown the symbols that Data has on his chest actually changing. Instead of just a camera goes, the camera goes away, it goes back, and now he has a different symbol on his chest, you know? Maybe it was budgetary oh. constraints. I think at one point the camera was turned away, and we heard a little sound effect. Yeah, that's true. And then we turned back, and it was another it's one. It's because of those extra three seconds for the melting comet. Ah, uh, that must be it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think there are some cool effects, but yeah, they couldn't go that far maybe for that one. <laughs> Well, let's start talking about, I think the focus of the episode ends up being Data, really. And he's kind of this conduit for all of these ancient characters, and the Information Archive chooses him, I think, toward the beginning to inhabit all of these characters of of this ancient civilization, and he has to channel their emotions as well. So I'm just curious, does it make sense that Data is chosen for this role, or could it have been someone else? Your thoughts, Chris? I do. First of all, I think it makes sense because it's Brent Spiner and he's an incredible actor. So if anyone can pull it off with getting the script the day before they shoot it, it <laughs> makes sense for the it makes sense that Brent Spiner could do it. The fact that it's data, yeah, of course, because he has this quest uh, to be more human. But it seems like he's channeling all of these emotions when he doesn't have an emotion chip. Right. Uh, well, you kind of got me there, but I guess his <laughs> his personality is, is buried, right? He has the android equivalent of multiple personality disorder, so it's really not him. It's it's these other echoes or other personalities and people from the civilization using his body as a vessel to express themselves. So he may just be sitting back watching it, which may then give him a lot more information on these these people's and this civilization's emotions. Okay. Yeah. What do you think, Amy? <laughs> okay. This totally makes sense. And in every single part of the episode, I loved it all. So first we see Data in the flash of light and he gets a little quirk, you know, so something's already happened to his pon- positronic net. And then in engineering, when Jordy is, you know, examining him and then he realizes and he you see that part on his head that it has mm-hmm. transformed mm-hmm. okay so that's that transformation so i totally buy that data is you know displaying these emotions because he's he's already been transformed right and at the very end when he's talking to picard and he was like explaining well or picard's like you had almost a thousand you know p- 
people in you, characters in you. And Data's like, well, you know, I almost feel empty. And that got me thinking, like, he is the perfect conduit. Because if you think about Omicron Theta with the the uh, memories of all those were downloaded, right? And oh, that's yeah. on inheritance. Yeah. And so he's already used to having all the memories of the, the Omicron Theta. And so now he's got that as well. And I was just like, and Picard's like, you're on this, you know, human quest. And it just makes perfect sense all throughout the episode. Data was the person to have this experience. I mean, in fact, what you're talking about toward the end of the episode, Picard even says you've transcended the human condition. Mm-hmm. You've been an entire civilization. And and I and I wonder, Amy, like, do you think that affects him going forward that he's been this entire civilization effectively? So, I think when that they leave and obviously he goes back to normal. He still has the memories, mm-hmm. but uh, he's not able to experience the emotion of when he was transformed as, you know, Musaka and those characters. So I think it definitely adds to, but it, it I, I don't know, does it change him? Well, if, if there's anyone, if there's anyone on the crew that could go through an experience like that and then go back to work the next day, it'd be Data. Because everyone else would probably have a lot of issues to deal with for a little while. Although think about this. This is a little past halfway point of season seven. And in Generations, we see him with an emotion chip. Maybe it motivates him to experience that. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that could be. It's a lot of lot of information he got in just a, in, a, in, in one experience. So while we're talking about the characters that, that Data is kind of inhabiting, I'm curious to see, like... What do you think is the story that's being played out with Masaka and Corgano and Ehad and all of these characters? I'm just curious for you to put it in your own words and and try to say, like, what is the story that's being told here? Well, I did think a lot about it in, in my notes, you know, like Musaka is described as pain, death, hurt, queen, lazy, sleeping, and Corgano stop chasing her, um, trying to stop the sun from climbing the sky, and talks, oh, and when Ehot is explaining, like, burning people and, you know, death, and that, to me, is just the Mother Earth, like, the sun, and, well, and we know the sun and the moon, but, like, when he was talking about people were dying and being burned, I'm like, you know, our earth cycles, you know, we have had famine, fires and drought, like all of those things that he's attributing to Masaka is what's happening with mother nature, if you will. And how many of, you know, ancient mythologies have looked to the stars and, you know, and so they're looking to the stars. And I think, you know, as as it says, like Musaka is the sun and Corgano is the moon. But I think that they're translating that and putting it down to this Mother Earth and, and what's happening to their civilization. So to me, that's what I see it as. Yeah, I think the key, a lot of it is uh, when Picard as Corgano confronts Masaka at the end. And uh, Picard tells him it is difficult brightening the sky forever. Maybe and 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 I and I thought maybe it's this is about honoring the seasons, honoring the the and honoring the changes of time, and honoring rest. 
and accepting accepting yes. nature's balance and that there's a season for everything. There's a time for the hunt and then there's a time for, for rest. Yeah, that was really important when it was like, you know, there's, you know, ancient civilizations and cultures and, you know, the your rituals, like they honor that balance. Very, very good point. Well, that's quite interesting because I got something a little bit different out of it. Awesome. Oh, tell yeah, us. because what I got out of it this time is that, I mean, they talk about Masaka as the queen. So I saw her as the ruler of a civilization. And in that civilization's beliefs, sacrifice to the gods is important. And Ihat is a character that escaped a sacrifice. And that's why he's afraid of getting her attention. I think later there's some like unnamed person that's that's also fearful of that. So I a lot of for a lot of it I this last time when I was rewatching it I saw it as kind of a a mythical story about a ruler and their and the sacrifices that that they need and that it's something that is you know a really painful and difficult experience but necessary unless there is something else to balance it Corgano the moon so I kind of took it more imagining like an ancient civilization where sacri- where human sacrifice is important. Yeah, I think if we mix up all three <laughs> of it, we've got exactly what Joe Minoski was intending. Because I, I agree yeah, I with you, too. Justin. I do. Or he could have been intending something wildly different. Wow. I mean, because that's really interesting because I watched it this time and I was like, I got it. And then you guys brought out all this stuff about Mother Nature and the Seasons. I was like, I didn't get it. <laughs> but no, I can see what you're saying. And I mean, there's like in, in like just speaking biblically, like when is it Abraham asked to sacrifice his son? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can definitely see that that direction. Well, and when you were talking like about, you know, making these sacrifices, like and I teach history of math and numbers, of course, and, you know, the Aztec civilizations and how they were you know, making those sacrifices and the symbols and stuff like it is very Aztec Mesoamerican, in my opinion, you know, with those little hieroglyphs. And, and so I was watching it going, wait, did they discover zero? Like my math mind. (laughs) The music, the music for this episode too, feels very, there's like a pan flute, I think they use in the orchestration. So it sounds, it sounds definitely, I mean, I feel that's purposeful. Mm, mm Mm-hmm. But then you look at the contrast of the characters of Ehat. Ehat's the one that we see the most, who is obviously um, kind of a trickster and and sneaky. Like you said, he gets away. He escapes from Masaka's wrath. And then you have uh, the second character. I think it's the second character Data appears as, which is the the one that's like a devotee to uh, Masaka and and mistakes Troy old, for Masaka. The old man? Right, yeah. No, the second one. Oh, yeah. yeah. That doesn't get a name. He doesn't get a name, yeah. right. And so there's the one, the one side, which is like, I'm going to escape this. And the other one that's, I worship you. I'm for you. That I will accept mm-hmm. I'm it. I'm yours. Yeah, they definitely mm-hmm. seem like, like archetypes, like of, of different yeah. kinds of people and, and personalities that are not accepting what you should do or what should be inevitable and those that, that do accept it. So. But they're ambiguous enough to not know exactly what they represent, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Because I, when you're saying it, like, I can see these, like you're saying, these archetypes within my students. Oh. (laughs) 
obey me and accept me as their queen as and those mother. who are going to defy me and escape and not learn math. Yeah. That, Sorry. Yeah, and, and I've had a rough day. That's okay. Well, and instead of the threat being execution, it's bad grades, right? <laughs> exactly. That's your hell and brimstone right there. Teacher Masaka is here. Do you have a do you have one student <laughs> that behave. says she she's going to hurt us all like the child character? Oh, no. <laughs> The Wrath of Musaka. If only they got the reference. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. <laughs> that would be funny. Just mention it and be like, you haven't been watching your Star Trek. <laughs> wow. No, you know, I really think that's that's really illuminating. And I'll be interested also, listeners, if you have a different interpretation of what's going on with the story, we'd be happy to... Because I think it is the kind of thing that you can interpret it a lot of different ways and bring into it a lot of a lot of different things because it has that mythical kind of aspect. Wow. Yeah. So I learned something about that. So something else that I noticed about this episode that, I don't know, maybe it's a weird thought, but I almost felt... I mean, it is a Joe Minoski episode, so I think that's okay. Yeah, so there's weird stuff. (laughs) Like, what, what struck me this time is it was almost like a narrative video game. And the reason that I say that is, like, Picard has to find the right people to talk to. He has to ask the right questions to get the information he needs to get to the next part of the game, effectively, game in quotes. And 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 then he has to take an action at the end in order to resolve it. And, like, the end, everything vanishes. So is that is that a weird thought? I just saw it almost like a video game this time. I hadn't thought about that, but I'm on board. I think that's kind of cool. It's like Legend of Zelda or Absolutely. something. Absolutely yeah, yeah. love it it's this quest exactly and when you're saying go to different people that's exactly i when you were saying that i'm like i could be, and i don't play a lot of games but i can see that oh you have to go talk to this town's person right. and then go talk to this town's person you know oh, yeah justin that's, that's amazing really cool. and i don't know why it hit me this time but like as i was watching it i almost saw in my head like, you know, this 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 little Picard, like, and you're walking the character, it comes <laughs> up to someone and there's like this <laughs> this little thought bubble that's Masaka and then he goes to eat out or whatever. I mean, it's a 16-bit the... oh your video gosh. game you're seeing, right? Right, yeah, exactly. Totally. <laughs> but like, okay, so, and the other thought that I had related to that was Picard knows after a while this is the way to crack the code. Like, there's this tractor beam and maybe they would might be able to find some technological way or the torpedo, like, nothing's working. But at a certain point, Picard is like, okay... We need to kind of play along with this and see where it goes. So do you think Picard is, with his interest in ancient cultures and these stories, is kind of uniquely suited to arrive at the real solution? Oh, absolutely. I loved seeing Picard using his archaeology. Like, that's in my notes. Like, you know, and when he's like, oh, I regret losing the opportunity to learn more. Like, but you can see it, it really is breaking his heart because he loves exploring and looking at cultures and then, you know, relating it to where we are now. Like Picard is the perfect person. And if this is a game, it's going to be an online game. And then I get to be Deanna <laughs> Troy, right? I love her yeah. in this episode and I'm just going to insert it here right now yeah, real ahead. quick. Like, She has a very large and important part to play in this. Like when the, when the temple comes, like, you know, she is the first person to whip out her tricorder and start scanning and, you know, recognizing the symbols and, you know, it's Troy is very important in this. And so if this is a game and it's online, then I'm going to be there with you solving the quest and I'm going to be counselor Troy. 
Yeah, and I'll, I'll be making sure to push the button that has Troy bring out her tricorder, right? And I'll throw the extra leaves on the on the uh, set for you. Thank <laughs> yeah, you. I'm glad you brought up Troy because I I really love her in this episode too. Uh, but going back to Picard, there's just I I of course I think he's he's exactly the person to kind of unlock the codes. But there's one line that kind of bugged me a little bit that took me out before he figures it all out when he goes, there are similarities between this culture and others that I've studied. I would imagine I'm just going to improvise. And I just thought that was like weird. Oh, I, I just think I'm going to improvise. Why did, I felt like, why did that strike you as weird? I don't know. It felt like that was yeah. a, oh, well, we're not really sure what we're doing. I'm not hating on this episode. Obviously, I, I like it. But yeah. I think... It just felt like a uh, like a piece of tape on the plot. I'm just gonna we'll just play it by ear. Yeah, I, if you look at his past experience and what he has done, he is a little yeah. more methodical. So him winging it. No, no, but I mean he has to because they don't, he doesn't even know the whole story or where he needs to get to, and he's doing this whole investigation with Data as these characters. He's like, oh Masaka, can I talk to him? Oh, you need this, you need that. So I, actually, I mean. I've never really even hardly noticed that line at all because I figure he's just saying like, okay, I don't know like step one, two, three, four, but step one is to talk this through and see where it goes. After that, I don't know. Yeah. So I think it's interesting. It struck you that way. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and his winging it is going to be a hundred times better than anyone else winging it because of his, you know, studying and you know, what his background of what he knows yeah. the culture. So I'm okay I, I like with when Jordy's like, well, we might, it might turn the ship into a giant rock, but all right, let's try it. <laughs> but back to Troy real quick. I, I really love her in this episode and I love seeing her in the full Starfleet uniform. I just think she looks so powerful. And she, the, two thoughts about trying this episode. She, in, in the teaser, she's visiting the classroom and she's the one that kind of gets the audience that I think that her scene sets up the uh, TNG, this episode, asking the audience to use their imagination and to think outside the box. Mm, I think it's okay. that's what kind of is the impetus for us getting invested in the episode. It's her saying, hey, but how do you feel about this? How can you express yourself? Um, and I think that that's I think that she's kind of the key to unlocking that episode at the beginning. Now, if I were to rewrite a little bit of this episode, because her devotee uh, Masaka's devotee mistakes Troy as Masaka. I think it would have been really cool if instead of Data becoming Masaka, Data was just all the other inhabitants and Troy had to impersonate Masaka mm. instead. Oh, wow. And then Picard came up and it was Picard and Troy interacting and watching Data as the other characters react to that. I don't know. I think it would have been really cool because I loved when they oh, mistook yeah. her for Masaka. I would have loved to see them pull on that thread. That's fantastic. I'd never, ever thought about that, but I think that would have been great. And I don't think there's any reason why this archive couldn't transform someone else into another character. Or she could just impersonate. She can impersonate Masaka too, and she'd have to play along with Picard. Yeah, it doesn't even have to be that she, yeah, she could just be impersonating, but Data there viewing the interaction between Musaka and Corgano. No, no. I think it would have been even better if she's actually inhabited by the character of Masaka and and that Marina Sirtis gets to play like this wrathful, <laughs> vengeful oh, queen. Oh, I'm down yes. with that. <laughs> that would be something else. Wow, I never thought about I that. I love it, Chris. Great <laughs> idea. Oh, my gosh. 
Yeah, and I think you're right because, you know, we open up with Troy at the school and I just love that Data is there and she really is understanding what art is. Art is about feeling, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not the... You know, and when Data does the treble clef, I just, I really laugh every single time. I'm like, Data, that's so you, you know, but <laughs> art, what do you feel? How are you going? And when she talks to the little boy and he's like, oh, I don't, I don't think I have the bird right. And she's like, well, make me feel that it's a flight, you know, that it's flying. I just think it's so great. And and you're right. It sets up the entire episode of what we need to do and to build that imagination. And Data was trying. I mean, he made, he replicated the pad and he said it was, what was it? 1.3% within 1.3%. And yes. <laughs> for an Android, that's imaginative. You know, it's, he could have made yeah. it 100% accurate. Yeah. And then I like when he, he looks to her for, you know, is this better? And she goes, that's a start. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Little side note, though, like, why is Data in this class with children? It almost makes it seem like they're treating him like a child. Isn't there like an adult like arts and crafts class? No, 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 no. no. <laughs> I totally thought that. And in my notes, I'm like, I want to take a class just for fun. Like there's there's some classes at my school that I'm like, even just high school. I'm oh, okay. like, I want to sit in on that class and just learn. And I would love to go back to university just for fun. Really? Like, okay. That's to me. <laughs> yes. If I. Yeah. But would you go to like a fifth grade class to sit in? You know what? I really need okay. to in the arts because I am terrible and my imagination sucks. So yes, I would need to go back to kindergarten and do their half hour of arts and crafts because I'm terrible at it. It's just, that's my weakness. Like I know it. And so I love that Data gets to come in and take this class and help him explore his humanity. Like I want to do that and I would totally do it if I was independently wealthy. That's cool. Hmm. I, you know, I didn't, it didn't seem odd to me the first time that I saw saw him in the in the classroom but there's got to be adult arts classes too on a ship of a thousand people yeah. of course but but there's also <laughs> something something to be said about connecting with that early creative arts experience you know i think of music classes when i was a kid and they were incredible although let's think about this why is he so unimaginative with sculpting when he can be very imaginative in his painting but that he's worked at much longer. So when mm. did we start seeing him painting? I think the first time was uh, when his dream started in Birthright, right? In season six? Or did we see him paint? No, he painted he had before to that. Been painting before anyway, it was that. probably four or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm And he thinking. played musical instruments so, too. So, I mean, he has more experience with that. And so now he's venturing out. Yeah, but he had the same issue with music. I mean, he played everything perfectly. It oh, was right. just tech. Y- technically perfect but there wasn't much expression there was no expression or imagination or well but actually there there was for that because picard figures out that he has several styles that he's mixing which is actually very creative that's true so i guess that's his interpretation but again that's he's just but that's what people actually do they take several influences and they mix it into something new so he's i think he's doing right but for somehow for the sculpture he's like look at this pad (laughs) it's weird if to me it's weird because i think he is more creative than that Mm -hmm. but maybe i'm getting hung up on it too much so i wanted to see at this point 
if there are other aspects of the episode that you guys wanted to talk about, because I think we've gone through the ones that I had on the outline. So any other things jump out at you about masks, Amy or Chris? Well, I was going to say something that is a little bit of a non sequitur, but it's really relevant and it's kind of a happy coincidence. I just, and I don't know if either of you or any of the listeners have watched Mr. Robot at all, the TV series. I just I have not. Yeah, it's really cool. No. It's very different and weird. But I when when I when I when we first decided to do masks, I just started season two of Mr. Robot. And there's a quote in the first couple episodes. And he says, how do I take off a mask when it stops being a mask? When it's as much a part of me as I am? Let the world be unmasked. We will find out our true selves. We will find our true selves again. And then later he says, and this is why I'm different. Sometimes my mask takes over. And I just mm-hmm. thought it's so cool. Without going into what the show's about, there's some themes about what Data's going through with this character at this point in this series. And I just thought it was really cool that that came up at the same time that we were getting ready for this podcast. Wow. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, it makes me think a little bit about the the title of the episode. I know, you know, we see that he makes this mask and Picard has this mask as Corgano, but like in what way... Is it trying to talk about like the the masks or the personas that people tend to put on all the time mm-hmm. for different situations? I I just wondered if it had something to do with that and what you guys think about that. Yeah, I definitely have a mask when I'm on at school. Like I am Miss Nelson. Like and I encourage my students to view me as Miss Nelson. Like I need it to be that way. And even on the podcast, like here I am, this is Star Trek, Amy. (laughs) And then when you go home, I'm daughter, Amy. Right. And, and these masks, if you will, in quotes, like they, I don't know, they sort of, if you put them all together, that's who I am. And, you know, when people ask me, well, what do you do? Well, I teach like that's that is who I am. I love Star Trek. That is who I am. It helps me to identify, you know, who I am based on these different masks that I wear. And some people who know me as teacher, Miss Nelson, and then hang out with me otherwise, like I'm a different person. I'm sorry, but that's how I am. I sort of compartmentalize things. And so sometimes people are like, oh, well, I get this a lot from students too, but you know, I I didn't think you were this fun. Well, yeah, (laughs) because that's work, Amy, and this is play, Amy. You know, there's just different aspects that I don't always show and I choose not to show because of different scenarios and situations. So I like this idea of delving into yeah, I feel the same way. Like when I'm if I'm music directing in front of a group of actors, I'm music director, Chris, or I'm conductor, Chris. If I'm hanging out talking Star Trek with somebody again, I'm Star Trek, Chris. And they're all different masks that we wear. I think maybe in the episode, the, the episode is entitled masks. And I and I always thought maybe that should be dealt with in a more direct way with the characters that we all wear these different masks that we all wear, that we all have these different versions of ourselves that we use and put on depending on the situation that we're in and who we're surrounded with. Hmm. But maybe this whole story is, is to make us talk about, talk about that and what that means, you know, and look at it. I mean, and maybe, maybe taking it further, like when Picard says at the end that 
that data's had these thousands of characters, this entire civilization within him, maybe there's the potential for all of us to be able to express what can be the potential of an entire civilization. Like we have, I think, the the potential to go all of these different directions and do these thousands of different things. I mean, our lifetime won't do them all, but it's almost like from birth, there's that potential of anything in a civilization that you might be able to do. Maybe I'm taking it too far, but I just had I that love thought. It. No, I, abs- I love that, Justin. And I was thinking, Chris, with what you were saying and what we were talking about before, just like, and, you know, we have these masks and maybe we can find that one person where we can take off the masks. Mm. Or combine be- all of the masks. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Wow. And there's also the concept that... Like Justin and Rosie. <laughs> there's also the concept that we are... We are everything to somebody. So to somebody, I'm mm. I'm a trusted confidant. To somebody, I'm a best friend. To somebody, I'm a total jerk. You yeah. know, I'm not saying yeah because I, you're a total jerk, but oh, yeah. Justin but, thinks I'm yeah. a jerk. But yeah. what I, but what I, what, but what I no, no, no. But what I meant is that people can have different perspectives, and they can right. even see the same person and the same behavior very differently through their own mask and their own filter. Yeah. So it's maybe just as much as about what is behind the mask as who's looking at the mask. You know, and one thing I wanted to throw in and sort of maybe twist that just a little bit, but like when Data says, what does it feel like when a person loses his mind? Mm. And sort of going along with this theme of, you know, we talked about like, well, he has this multiple personality disorder in essence for an android, you know, but... You know, is it that putting on too many masks is going to drive us crazy? Like, I felt so much compassion when he said that. Like, what does it feel like when a person loses his mind? Like, the only time I feel like that is, yeah, when I've got all these expectations and too many things up in the air and I'm trying to balance everything, like, I feel like I'm losing my mind. I mean, I think that goes along with how many masks am I trying to wear and to please everyone and to do everything. And I just need to, okay, I need the mask of Amy Nelson and just, you know. For the record, I think this is the most times when we've said the episode name or a variation of the episode name. Oh, no, we're going into Spock's brain. But I still like it, I know. I thought that when he said... What does it feel like when a person loses his mind? I thought the first time I watched it that the the, the episode was going to go to a much darker place and we were going to get some kind of weird, scary... Data's frame of mind. Right. And then, <laughs> then just now when you were saying that, Amy, it made me think of Generations when he starts when they, after the emotion oh. chip is activated, right? Mm-hmm. And he can't handle it, yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. So many, so much, so many about. things that were coming that I hadn't even thought yeah. about. I mean, I I already liked the episode a lot, but I think I love what we're we're talking about here. Yeah, very cool. So, uh, Amy, let's start with your final thoughts. Oh my goodness! Well, after you're right. After this discussion, I love love this episode. It is definitely way up there. It's moved, hmm. you know, major spots like. I'm loving our discussion that we had on the masks that we wear and what who that represents and the symbolism and all of our different, totally different interpretations, and yet it all is the same. And again, just going back, crediting Joe Minoski, like 
It's so deep and it's so out there. Like you just, and that's to me what makes great Star Trek and the acting and the directing. And I mean, I have so many notes on like, oh, I love how they shot this angle. And I love, you know, there just was so much about it. I really did enjoy it. I love Deanna in it. Uh, Brent Spiner is amazing. And it's a great, great episode. Listeners, please go back and watch Masks, especially if you haven't in a long while, and see what it does for you and how you interpret it. I would love to get to know what you think the masks represent. And just to add to that, I'll be interested if there are listeners out there who really don't like this episode, have listened to this discussion, and maybe it's given them a different perspective, or they're going to go back and check it out again. We'd be interested to know that as well. Yes. So, Chris, your final thoughts? So, again, when I first watched it, I said, what are we going to talk about? What are we going to talk about, <laughs> Amy? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was so cute. We were texting back and forth. I'm like, Chris, it's I, a great I was episode. Like, I'm, get, I'm it's never going to get invited back on. But I again, I agree. This this episode has gone way up in my book now. After especially after this conversation, because it's just led. I mean, this is a lot to unpack, and it's great to talk with you guys about it. And any Star Trek story that that lends itself to to discussion like this is 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 awesome, and that's what Trek is all about. And uh, I also would love to hear what everybody else has to say about it. Yeah, I mean, and just adding my final thoughts. So, I mean, I think I said most of the time this is an episode that I've liked. Like this time, because I knew we were going to analyze it and talk about it, I really tried to kind of take in each part. I was actually watched it over, I think, maybe it was only a day, but like it was more than the 45 minutes because I just want to take some notes like, oh, that's interesting. And oh, let me try to follow this through line of, of this story. And that's how I got the, the sacrifice story. But I think it is interesting that we can kind of take a look at this episode in so many different layers. We can say, you know, what do the characters represent? What's the symbolism? What do the masks mean? You know, what's the real story that's going on? What do you think of the visual aspect? There's a lot of different ways to, to look at it. Or even is it like a video game, which is a weird thought. But I found as I was watching this, I had so many notes and there's so many things that I wanted to put on this this outline to talk about. And I feel like if we could, we could talk about this for, you know, two more hours probably. Uh, because I think what I've found is that it's a really rich episode. There's a lot that's that's going on. I mean, I think it can be a little bit hard maybe for people to watch sometimes because it's it's a lot of concentrated time where Brent Spiner is kind of going from one character to to another. But I think what's being said and like what it means for you watching it, I think is is super interesting. So I've also gotten a lot more out of it this time and it's maybe ranks higher than it did before because it's always been an episode like, yeah, I really like that. But as I watched it, I was like, wow, I'm really loving what's going on here. And then as we're discussing, I'm like, wow, I'm really loving what we're getting out of this episode. Mm-hmm. So this has been just such a great discussion. And really, thank you, Chris, for suggesting this because there was tons of things to talk about. And Masks is an episode, we talked about it a little bit on the Minoski episode, Earl Grey 189. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and we also may have talked about it a little bit here and there, but never really had an in-depth discussion of it. I know the previous crew did a rewrite, but that's different. Yeah, you know, I have to say just real quick too is that I know that a lot of the actors, especially Michael Dorn, they they had they had problems with this episode, and I can relate. And even the director, right? Right. 
And I can relate as an as a musician as, and as an artist in theater, doing a show or doing doing something musical that you don't really connect to, that you don't really understand, but you're doing it because it's your craft, it's what you work on, and it's your passion, and you love it, as all of these actors do and did. But you never know what kind of effect it's going to have. I've done shows before that I didn't particularly enjoy a lot, but people come up and they're touched and they're moved by it and it gets them talking and thinking about things. And I think that that's really, really great and and important to remember as artists. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and I think it, it is the kind of thing that I don't think any of us the first time around were like, yep, I get exactly what that's going for. It requires rewatching it. And these people that were making it, you know, they got to, I mean, there were a bunch of takes, but they probably didn't get it like at all the first time. And they're like, I guess I'll read these lines like this. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that is that is really interesting how you can have, you know, a group of professionals that are getting together to do something. They're going to do the best job they can, even if they don't really get what it's going for. And that it can still communicate something important to us decades later. I think that's that's really wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Chris, it's been great having you here on Earl Grey. Uh, tell our listeners where they can find you online. Well, it's been really amazing being here, too. Thank you both so much for having me. Uh, and I am on Instagram and Twitter, at CD Littlefield. Excellent. And, of course, in the Babel and Conference. And you're on the yes, Babel I'm Conference. Yes, I'm in the Babel Conference. <laughs> yep. Excellent. Well, Thanks so much for being a guest on your second podcast. We really loved having you here. Hope you'll be on many more to come. I'd love to. Thank you. Yes. Well, a preview of next week's episode. We will be continuing our Lost Episode series with part six. And I'm not going to reveal the titles of the ones that we're going to be talking about because I think I'm going to put... Because I think it's one of those where I'll put it out on the Babel Conference and on Twitter to see what people can guess based on the name. Yeah, that's what we do. Yeah, but I'm not going to do that in the preview here. Oh, okay. <laughs> I know you're disappointed. Also, I don't have the book near me, so I don't know what they're okay. called. But, uh... <laughs> it's always so fun because I love seeing what our listeners oh, have yeah. to say about what the title means because I'm clueless and it's so great. Well, it's been so much fun talking about masks with Christopher D. Littlefield, but that isn't the only thing we've been talking about here on the network. Here's what you might have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, The Ready Room. And again, the Kelvins, they're enjoyable to me, but I'm so thrilled I don't have to hang, you know, whatever the need was for them in 2006, that's been 13 years ago. I mean, talk about water under the bridge and how much things have changed. The way the world looked, media and Star Trek land looked in 2006 and what the emotion and the vibe and all that was is completely different now in these movies or a holdover from that, and that's fine. But they, the, our Star Trek world does not depend on them. Earl Grey. It's nice that she gets some revenge at the end because they reverse the whole connection to find them, right? But at the same time, that doesn't like... The ends do not justify the means. Literary Treks. But Tilly feels she's failed, and I think when you're at that age... Failure feels almost um, like it's going to annihilate you because you're still quite fragile. Your your sense of self is still quite fragile. That if something goes wrong, you think it's the end of the world. And in fact, it's only the the secret, of course, being a a grown-up is that when things go wrong, you still feel like it's the end of the world, but you kind of pick yourself up a bit more quickly. But Tilly hasn't had those experiences. It's always been success. The Orb. 
On top of that, the Ferengi going to the Mirror Universe gives us the opportunity to kind of explore one last time the character of Quark in a way where we are able to see how he's grown. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all of these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and written review, and we will probably read it on air. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, YouTube, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference. That's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it will come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Earl Grey. That will come right to us, and we might read your email on the show. All right, you can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. So, Justin, where can people contact you when you're not wondering why strange objects keep mysteriously appearing around your house? Hold on. I think one just appeared. It has a symbol on it. It is a half moon, and underneath it is a circle. Can you help me with that? Wow, it must be from a secret admirer. That transforms the matter in my house into this stone sculpture that mysteriously appeared here? That someone leaves for you. <sighs> These Some mysteries. Some ancient civilization <laughs> is admiring your work here on Earl Oh, okay, Ray. I'll take it as a compliment then. Okay. Well, when I'm not doing that, Oh, God, they keep appearing. Well, when I'm not doing that, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at TrekFan4747, where I tweet about nothing but Star Trek. Currently tweeting out my Season 7 rewatch of The Next Generation and lots of other Star Trek stuff. And you can find me hanging around the Babel Conference on Facebook. So, Amy, where can people contact you when you're not making masks in arts and crafts class? You know, I'm a math teacher, not arts and crafts. But I thought you said you were going to, you know, sit in on one of those classes. Yes. Actually, the teacher straight across the hall from me is the arts teacher in our school. So are you going to ask her to sit in on a class? I think I should, actually. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, (laughs) you can find me when I'm not sitting in on the arts and crafts class. Uh, You can find me. Where can you find me? You can find me here on the network where I co-host The Edge, which is about Star Trek Discovery with Patrick Devlin. I'm also currently doing postcards from the edge where we collect your fan response for discovery. I also on the fandom podcast network do Dis- Discoville with my good friends, Haley Stoddard, Kevin Reitzel and Kyle Wagner. I am on Twitter at Miss Amy Nelson and I do apologize. I've had to stop my Deep Space Nine rewatch. I got to season five and then Discovery started and I have no time. But the countdown is on in 12 more <laughs> weeks. <laughs> well, wait, by at the time of this recording in 12 more weeks, I'll get back to Deep Space Nine. But you can always find me right there in the Babel Conference. 
Yeah, Amy, I know you'll be busy with discovery and, you know, sifting through those hundreds of comments on postcards, but let me tell you this, you better finish your Deep Space Nine rewatch pretty soon because it looks like at some point they're going to try to have Star Trek like every week of the year. So then you won't have any time at all. I know, then I will. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, if you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, The Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take this opportunity to recognize our current associate producers. And they wear some funny masks. They are Norman Lau, Justin Ozer, Michael Huter, and Thomas Appel. Thank you for supporting Trek FM and especially Earl Grey. So join us next time for another cup of Earl Grey. Great joy and gratitude. Data, you've had an experience that transcends the human condition. You have been an entire civilization.